0: Please take your Bibles if you're able. We'll turn turn to this morning's reading. This is two different passages. The first will be in Matthew chapter 2, verses 16 through 18. And the second will be in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 15 through 17. Matthew chapter 2, verses 16 through 18. Then Herod when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem, and in all that region who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children, She refused to be comforted, because they are no more. Then we'll turn to Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 15 through 17. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children, because they are no more. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping, and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country." The word of the Lord.
1: But today we are continuing on in our sermon series, spoken by the prophets. And uh, Carolyn has promised that I am going to bless the children with my sermon. I don't know how we're going to do on that, but we'll see what we can do here. But kids, glad to have you with us uh, today uh, for uh, for church. We're continuing on, uh, spoken by the prophets, our Advent series. Been looking at Matthew's gospel as a guide. Uh, He references five particular passages from the Old Testament that are prophecies that point back towards Jesus. And we've been paying attention to these passages in particular throughout our four weeks of Advent and then, of course, with Christmas Eve coming up, exploring these passages in their original Old Testament context and and then connecting those back uh, to Matthew's account of Jesus's birth, and today we come upon Matthew 2:16 through 18, where Matthew recounts what has come to be known as the slaughter of the innocents. And uh, it's not something that it's in the it's in the uh, it's in the gospel narrative account of Christ's birth, but it's not. Uh, something that shows up on the Christmas cards uh, very frequently. And uh, this is one of the more tragic uh, episodes in all of Scripture. It certainly is the most tragic episode in the uh, coming of Christ into the world. And as Matthew recounts this incident, he talks about, we've been tracking along in the narrative of Matthew a little bit, he talks about how Herod, when the wise men had come to him, and told Herod that there was another king born of the Jews. This made Herod, who saw himself as the king of the Jews, uh, rather nervous. And he tried to figure out where this baby that had been born was. He discerned that it was in Jerusalem, or rather in uh, Bethlehem, rather. And he found out the timing, roughly, of when the child had been born. And so he sent his soldiers into Bethlehem, and he killed all of the children that were two years old and under all the 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 uh, male babies rather, in order to try to kill this uh, usurper king as he saw. And uh, what a tragic time, what a tragic episode. And Matthew recounts that episode and then he grabs hold of this verse back found in Jeremiah 31 and he connects the tragedy in Bethlehem to another tragedy in Israel's history back in Jeremiah 31. And we're going to see when we get to Jeremiah 31 that like the mothers of Bethlehem in Matthew 2, the Israelites are facing the bitterness of deep sorrow and irrecoverable loss. Maybe that's how some of you feel this morning. Christmas, of course, is supposed to be a happy time, and in so many ways, it is a happy and joyous time, but sometimes for many of us, it's because of particular losses in our life that are more acute around the holidays, or maybe it's just you're just in the middle of a very difficult season of life, which just overlaps into Christmas, and all the joy of Christmas cannot eclipse the sorrow and the pain that you are experiencing at this season of life. I know that's true for many of you here because i read the welcome registers and pray through the welcome register prayer requests every week and some of you are carrying such heavy burdens burdens related to your children burdens related to your health you're facing life threatening health crises burdens related to your marriage perhaps some of you are facing difficulties and challenges and loss for which there is just no clear answer. There is no simple or quick resolution or comfort or relief. And all that you've been trying to do to resolve the situation seem to come up empty. Maybe you're working at it, trying to make things better, but your efforts just seem futile. Today's passage, this fourth And final Sunday of Advent is a reminder that God has not forgotten us, that he loves us, that there is hope for the future, even in the midst of difficulties and pain that are hopeless by any human account. If you're a Christian this morning, my prayer for you, what I've been praying for you as I've been preparing this sermon, is that you would hold on to the hope that you have in Christ. Whatever your situation. And if you're not a Christian this morning, my prayer for you is that you would find hope in Christ for the first time, whatever your situation. So let's get into our fourth prophecy found in Jeremiah 31. We're going to explore the hope that's held out for us in this passage and then we're going to connect that back into Matthew 2 as we celebrate communion. So Jeremiah 31, as you're turning there, let me just make a couple words about Jeremiah and who he was and the prophecies he's referred to often uh, as the weeping prophet. Israel at this time had been very unfaithful to the Lord, and God had sent Jeremiah as a prophet to the nation of Israel to bring a message of judgment and doom and distress. And so Jeremiah came. He had to preach this difficult message to the rebellious nation. And he, as he preached the message of judgment and doom that was to come upon the nation, he wept because he was so heartbroken by what was coming. At the beginning of Jeremiah's ministry, now, the Assyrians, had, they had come in uh, about 100 years previous. They had come into the northern 10 tribes, sacked the northern 10 tribes, taken them away into captivity. And now the Babylonians, at the beginning of Jeremiah's ministry, are coming into the southern two tribes, which is what Jeremiah is a part of, and they have invaded the south. And all throughout this invasion, as they laid siege around the walls of Jerusalem, and Jeremiah is within the walls of Jerusalem. They're uh, in this siege. And Jeremiah prophetically criticizes the Jewish king. He criticizes the king's prophets, the king's priests, the king's counselors. And he criticizes them of their idolatry and their faithfulness, faithful, faithlessness. And his message essentially was this. Babylon has been sent by God to bring judgment upon us and we should surrender and we should take our lumps like a contrite child he prophesied that babylon would would win and that they would be taken into captivity where they would be for 70 years and because he advocated for uh, surrender to the babylonians he was considered at best a pessimist and at worst he was considered a traitor At what point he was even thrown into a muddy well and left for dead, barely escaping with his life, all of which is to say so much of Jeremiah's prophecies, particularly in the first, call it, 28 chapters or so, are difficult and unhappy. But in the midst of Jeremiah's prophecies and in the midst of a very difficult situation for the nation, we come upon a word of hope. That's what we get in Jeremiah 31. This is, Jeremiah 31 is one of the most comforting passages in all of the prophets. It's probably the most comforting passage for sure in Jeremiah. And indeed, all of Jeremiah 31 is comforting and positive. as a word and a message of hope. All of it is positive except for verse 15. Verse 15 is the one verse in the whole chapter that has a word of sorrow and grief. And it's the one that Matthew chooses to connect back to in Matthew 2. So let's begin with verse 15. Let me read it again for us. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more couple questions. Perhaps this, this is your first time reading through this text. A couple questions that might present themselves to us is, where's Rama? What's all the crying about? And who's Rachel? All right, so let's see if we can figure some of these things out. We learn from Jeremiah 40, verse 1, that Rama is the place where the Israelites were herded together by the Babylonians while they were awaiting deportation. So as the Babylonians came in and they're conquering all the little uh, towns and communities around Jerusalem, they're gathering all the people together in Ramah and they're sending them off into captivity in Babylon. So Ramah is not a happy place in this context, which then, of course, answers the next question, why all the weeping? All the weeping is because the children of Israel are on their way to captivity. So this is a grievous time for the nation. It's a time of suffering and loss and despair. But who is Rachel and why are we talking about Rachel weeping? Well, the answer to that question takes us back even further into the Bible, to Genesis chapter 35. And Rachel, you may or may not know, depending on your familiarity with the biblical storyline, she is one of the matriarchs of Israel. So a quick review. Abraham and Sarah are the original fount of the Jewish people. Abraham and Sarah, the patriarch and matriarch of the Jewish people. Abraham has two sons. He has Isaac and he has uh, Ishmael. And the Jewish descent is traced through Isaac. Isaac marries Rebekah. And they have two sons, Jacob and Esau. The Jewish descent traces through Jacob. And Jacob marries Rachel. So Rachel is one of the matriarchs of the, of the Jewish people. Actually, Jacob had four wives all at the same time, and not by his choice, but that's a crazy story for another time, and we're not going to get into that uh, right here. But from Jacob comes 12 sons who become the fathers of the 12 tribes of the people of Israel. So Rachel, in any case, is his favorite wife. She's one of the matriarchs. She had a hard time conceiving, And that was a sore and grievous trial for her. But finally, she does conceive, and she bears Jacob two sons, his two final sons. But tragically, she died in sorrow during the birth of her second son. So of all the matriarchs in Jewish history, Rachel is the only one of whom we have any record of being sorrowful. Jeremiah's prophecy picks up on that story, that reference to Rachel's sorrow in Genesis 35, and uses it here. Rachel, as a matriarch of Israel, is a metonymy of sorts for the nation as a whole. So maybe you remember your uh, English grammar in high school, but a metonymy is where one thing stands in for another thing, right? So we would say here in America, we might reference Lady Liberty, crying because of the injustice of our society. Or we might say, Uncle Sam wants you to join the military. Where Lady Liberty and Uncle Sam are metonymies, they stand in for the whole of America. Rachel is like that in this passage. She's a matriarch of Israel, and her grief represents the nation's grief. Just as Rachel, the wife of Jacob, wept when she was sundered from her children through death, so too Rachel, the mother of the nation, weeps when she is bereft of her children through exile. And this verse 15, this recounts what is certainly the darkest moment in Israel's history. Their long history as a people, this represents their darkest moment most desolate moment. Centuries earlier, God had called Jewish people to himself. He had turned them into a great nation. And he had cut a covenant with them. He had made a covenant with them through the prophet Moses. And the covenant had both blessings and cursings, which can be read in the book of Deuteronomy. And these blessings and cursings were pretty simple terms. Follow the path that God has laid out for you and you'll be blessed. Go the way of the pagan nations, and you'll be cursed. And the ultimate and final end, the ultimate climax of the curses of the covenant, was rejection by God and exile into captivity. If they persisted in their rebellion, God would bring punishment and chastisement, and they would get increasingly more intense as Israel persisted in rebellion and the final chastisement, the final punishment was the destruction of the people, rejection and off into exile. God would drive them away from his presence and into exile, just as he had driven the pagan nations out of the land to make way for Israel. And here at last, during Jeremiah's day, after ignoring warning after warning, year after year, the final curse of the covenant has come upon them. They are being rejected by God, and they are being led away into exile. What hope is left when you have been rejected by God? And then here comes the word of hope and comfort, Jeremiah 31. Before and after, verse 15, God speaks words of encouragement and hope, a a heartening word of assurance that even though they're going off into exile, even though all seems lost, even though this seems the rejection by God, he has not forgotten them. Look what he says in verse 16. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. God is saying to Israel, I know this is painful. I know this is hard. I hear your bitter weeping, and I see your inconsolable grief. But be at peace. Be at peace and have hope, because you can quit your weeping and dry your tears, because all is not lost. Your children, who are my children, will come back to the land from their captivity. And then there's this beautiful line at the start of verse 17. Look what he says to the people in the midst of their despair, in the midst of their ruin. He says, there is hope for your future. It's the word that they so needed to hear as they faced what seemed to be a hopeless future. There is hope for your future. All is not over. All is not ruined beyond repair. Your children shall come home again. The Lord's word of hope to the nation of Israel, I believe, is the Lord's word of hope to all of us, but maybe particularly to you this morning. And I so want you to believe that word, especially to those of you that are standing, weeping in your own Rama your own place of deportation and exile, your own place of hopelessness. You're weeping like Rachel, refusing to be comforted. You can't see hope beyond your tears. You can't find faith beyond your fears. You can't imagine a world of tomorrow that is less painful or less sorrowful than the world of today. All your efforts... And all your attempts and labor to resolve your situation have come to nothing. And it seems that there is no reward for your work. But God would say to you this morning that there is hope for your future in the midst of your sorrow. God has not forgotten you normally at this point in my sermon, I would have some illustration to illustrate this point. And as I was writing the sermon, I got to this place and I wrote illustration. And then I kept going and I finished the sermon. I thought, I'm going to come back to that. I'm going to come up with a good illustration. And uh, so as I got back to that and I began to pray and think, okay, what's a great illustration to drive home this point? The first circumstance that came to my mind was not something that came from my life but rather something that came from our congregation's life. So I want to invite Mark and Val Dotson to come up. And uh, they have a story that in many ways embodies what we've been talking about. And I want, want them to share that with you all. We're going to sit down together and listen to them uh, tell their story. Mark and Val have been attending the church. For how long you guys been attending the church? Since 2011. 2001 so they've been around for a while and many of you uh, know mark and Val. and if you know them you know a bit about their story if you're newer to the church perhaps you haven't met them and you don't know much uh, of their story Uh, but they've got a great story of hope in the midst of hopelessness just want to talk about that a little bit right now and um, mark just thinking about uh, as we were kind of talking about uh, our time together here this morning the end of 2016 and then pretty much all of 2017, and then even into 2018, those were, those were difficult years for you guys. Very difficult. And why don't you talk a little bit about, just give us a picture of what it is that you guys, you guys were going through.
2: I'm gonna start this time. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so we were, we were in England in 2015, in part of 16, to help care for Mark's mom. So we came back every three or four months and then went back to England. But we were on one of our trips home in September of 2016. And um, Mark has struggled with tinnitus, a ringing in your ear, pretty severely for about 10 plus years. Um, But I think the stress of caring for his mom and Um, a few other things that happened, it really was exacerbated. And when we came home, he was in pretty bad shape. Um, He wasn't sleeping. I think he was having an adverse reaction to a medication, and it just got so bad that he was shaking constantly. There were tremors, and to a point where he couldn't sit on... The sofa without kind of falling over <clears throat> and some some elders and people came over and prayed over us and it was just day to day trying to figure out what to do to help him and I was increasingly concerned because of his lack of sleep
1: yeah Mark
3: tell us your thoughts just a little bit during that time well I had, as Valerie said, I had struggled with tinnitus for uh, 10 plus years and I just want to say this, if any of you are subject to um, loud noise at work, I was involved in construction and I was in the, uh, I worked for the fire department too, so I was around a lot of loud noise and developed tinnitus, which is like a ringing or buzzing in the ear and there's no known cure for it. So if any of you are in that situation, if you're a musician, make sure you protect your ears as best you can. When I w- used to be a firefighter paramedic, we didn't wear ear protection back then. I'm not blaming the fire department, but what I'm saying is just take precaution if you're a subject to a lot of noise. Um, but my thoughts <clears throat> beyond that are, um, I, I was struggling in many ways, uh, th- This uh, I had developed uh, uh, tremors which were constant. I, I was un- unable to sleep for a, a long time uh, through the night, I was only getting three or four hours of sleep. And uh, uh, this constant sh- uh, tremoring was, uh, was just wearing me out physically and uh, psychologically. Yeah, and I came, I remember coming to your house in and around
1: this time, and, uh, and it, you, were, you were in a bad, you were in a bad shape, and we were sitting in your living room, and, and uh, just even on the couch, you couldn't sit still, and your, your body was shaking, and it was even hard to have a coherent conversation with you. You were just so mentally exhausted, and uh, that was just a week before, just about a week before November 6th. Yeah, maybe tell us what happened uh, on November
3: 6th.
2: Um, so I want to be sensitive to the young people in here, so yeah. I'm going to kind of sound cryptic a little bit. Um, Mark wrote me a letter, and, and the next morning he wasn't in the in bed, so I thought he went for a walk. I knew he was in a bad way, but I thought maybe he went to get some fresh air, but that wasn't the case. Um, He tried to end things, so um, unfortunately, I found him before the police did. They grabbed me as soon as I did, but um, (sighs) he, he had to be rushed to the hospital, and it was a bad injury and um, it was very touch and go. My daughter and her husband, Sharon and Tony, were there with me. She was seven and a half months pregnant. Um, we, didn't, we didn't know if he'd survive, but the, about the second day after his surgery, he told me that God said to him, you don't get to decide when it's over and I hung on to that for a year because I knew that God is the one that gets to decide. And when it was so dark and so difficult, it was a year of in and out of behavioral health hospitals, um, off and on, just continuous trying to figure out. Um, Mark had psychosis, he had deep depression with anxiety and could not accept comfort or any kind of consoling it just his his brain was not in a good place Um, and I didn't understand any of that I never knew anyone who went through anything like that and um, behavioral health hospitals are not a pleasant place it's kind of like a prison with people that are really really ill and He was on 24-hour watch. We always had someone with us when I came to visit. And um, probably the only enjoyable thing at a hospital like that is mealtime. And Mark couldn't join in on that because of his feeding tube. So I left there very, very sad almost every time.
1: So obviously there was the trauma of the attempt to take your life and then injured yourself pretty significantly uh, in that. So there was quite a bit of just physical recovery to try to repair some of the damage and uh, that involved not being able to eat. Um, even, there was a period you couldn't talk as well, right?
3: For a short time.
1: And talk to us a little bit about where you were just mentally in, when you were particularly in the the, the psychiatric uh, wing of the hospital, but then also even just as things continue to progress. Talk to us about where you were mentally. You were really struggling with some deep spiritual depression too. Tell us a little bit about that.
3: Well, uh, I, beyond the physical and the psychological struggle I was having, there was a spiritual struggle too. You know, I was raised uh, in a wonderful church as a young boy in England, and I walked with the Lord, but I struggled with the verse in Matthew seven, where at the judgment day um, it's pronounced, where people come to the and they say, "Lord, Lord, have we not done this for you? Have we not done that? Have we not done the next thing?" And He says, "Depart from me, for I never knew you." So. I really struggled with a sense of assurance during that time, which was probably one of the hardest things to do.
1: Yeah, and you were fairly convinced in spite of all of our best efforts that you were cut off from God, that yeah. there was no hope for you, Correct. not only in your present circumstance, but even for your, for your future. Correct. Yeah, and you were, you were just in that dark spot, and I remember, and it, because it was, It was so long, like you were stuck there in that spot. And uh, I remember wanting to be a good encouragement for Val and you know for the kids and for you. But um, boy, it was hard. It was hard to be hopeful uh, in the midst of that, and um, it just was a really black time. But but here you are today, and that's not uh, where that story ended, thankfully. And so tell us a little bit about from that black time to the present.
3: Well, just to paint a little more of the picture, the black time, um, we had wonderful uh, physicians. We had a tremendous um, psychiatrist at um, Alexian Brothers, Dr. Agostano. But he basically had given up hope, too. He spoke to Valerie and said, "I." You know, basically, you know, this is a very, very difficult case. And um, <clears throat> because of the injury I'd sustained, i damaged damaged <clears throat> my ability to swallow, and I was put onto a feeding tube um, and was just fed with six cans of little fluid uh, every day. And I lost 50 pounds. I was really skin and bone. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, Most of my day in in the psychiatric ward was just laying in bed or walking up and down the corridor with all the doors being locked Very little natural light, so it was a really uh, black time Um, They had done uh, Two video swallow video um, swallow tests on me and basically it said that I would never be able to um, to uh, eat again and then after a period of over a year, going into two psychiatric hospitals, going out to Washington State for uh, special uh, depression, anxiety care in a Christian facility. Um, They gave me a third one and they noted that um, even though food, when I did the swallow, would enter my airway, that it would be immediately coughed out. And so, they said, we're going to try you just on certain foods, very uh, liquidized foods and uh, see how you do. And from that moment on, uh, a ray of hope really began to dawn. And um, one thing led to another and I gradually put on weight and the tremors that I had, which were involuntary, began to dissipate. And I, I sensed God's goodness, particularly through his people. I remember struggling with this whole concept of assurance. And there was a lady in the church, many of you will know Joan Edwards. She was a faithful prayer warrior for multiple years. And in the midst of my spiritual darkness, she wrote, not knowing fully what I was going through, but she wrote about assurance of faith, knowing for certain that you are covered by by the blood of the Lord Jesus. And I took that as a personal note, not only from John, but from the Lord, that he, had cut, he, he, he was assuring me that despite my great fears, uh, I was one of his own. Amen. Amen. And so gradually,
1: you, kind of the sun came up, and, and uh, you've... Uh, gone back and and have done some of your uh, street evangelism work in the UK and that's fantastic and uh, also are now the chaplain of the Oak Park uh, fire department which is fantastic so the Lord has done just some tremendous work uh, in your life and and, um, if you guys you have a moment here to to speak to people some of them really struggling uh, maybe in their own ways what would you say what message would you have of hope uh, for them
3: I would encourage all of us, especially if you don't know the Lord, to cling to him. You know, in Matthew, after Jesus gives a sermon on the mount, he goes to place, from place to place in northern Israel and to the east of Jordan, healing people, incredible. The women with a hemorrhage, uh, people, men that were blind, the demon-possessed in the gardenes, um, but then later on in Matthew, it talks about him going to Nazareth, and he couldn't really heal many people there because of unbelief. So I would yeah. say, firstly, if you are not a believer, come to Christ. Yeah. If you are a believer, just deal firstly, just deal with any sin in your life. Um, also, James tells us to bring our burdens to the church leadership. And I was very fortunate. Uh, Pastor Gerald, Johnny, Pastor uh, Todd, came and visit, visited me while I was going through that dark, ducks state. So I was extremely grateful for that. But there's two verses, one, one, uh, and I, let me close with this. One is a verse that I've clung to much of my life. It was written 3,000 years ago by King Solomon. And he wrote, writes this about hope. He said, a hope deferred makes the heart sick. But when it is fulfilled, it is a tree of life. And I had basically lost hope. But God was faithful and brought me back. But there's a greater hope than that. That hope is a temporal hope that's based on two things, time and our own health. Things like promotion, going away on a vacation, hoping for our family, both are, All of these things are both based on time and health. But there's another ho- hope that is far greater than that. That's, an, a, 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 that that's, that's not subject to chance. And that is a hope that St. Peter talks about. And if I can, I, do, I don't have this memorized, but I, I thought I would just read it here. This is a hope that according to great God's great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. A living hope that is not subject to fear, to time or our health. It's an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. As, uh, as Jeremiah wept over the nation of Israel, I believe the Lord Jesus weeps over our land here and is seeking to draw each one of us to know the hope that passes all understanding. And Val, what would you say? (laughs) Um,
2: I'm smiling because eight months ago, Mark could not have shared that. And mental health is a real thing, and we need to talk about it. And it's a, a long road sometimes to healing, but it is possible, and it could Be I call it the tunnel of chaos, where there is redemption at the other end. We don't know how God always is going to allow that redemption to happen, but my mantra was, he makes all things new. He is going to show up if you show up. I I came to church. I cried every time I came to church while Mark was in the hospital, but I showed up. I wanted to know what God had to say to me. And same for my quiet time. And I think, I, you know, I called people when I just needed encouragement. Yeah. So God is there.
1: God is there, amen. Let's thank uh, Mark and Val for sharing. I don't have a lot to add after that. And that's uh, such, hopefully that's such an encouraging story to you. Some of you might be in the right in the middle of it, and I think uh, the reality is that not every story that gets that black ends that happy. But somehow it's all still true, that in the midst of even darker despair that seems final, that there is no recovery, that somehow hope is still true in the Lord. That somehow God's promises still work. Thucydides was an ancient pagan Greek historian. He wrote an account of the Peloponnesian War between Athens and Sparta. And in his account, the mighty Athenian empire had come upon this small island of Melos and was trying to coerce it to join their side. in the Melians insisted on neutrality and instead told the Athenians that they were not going to join their cause, even though they were being forced at sword point to do it, but they were going to place their hope in justice and in the gods. And the Athenians scoffed at this. And here's their reply. They said, hope is a bulwark only to those who have no resources at all. In other words, the only reason you millions are chattering on about hope is because you can't save yourself through your own resources. So just give it up now and come to our cause. What the Athenians meant as an insult and a jeer was exactly right. As human beings, we have no resources to fix the unfixable problems of our lives. There are holes that are too deep for us to crawl out of. There are things that have happened that cannot be undone. And that's precisely why we must hope in God. We have griefs too deep, pains too acute. We are facing walls too high. We are being crushed beneath weights that are too heavy. And left to our own resources, we are destitute and without hope for our future. So the moral of the Dodgson's story, the moral of this sermon is not to just keep trying, to just dig deeper. You can do it. It's not the moral of this story. We all should try as hard as we can, but we will have no reward for our work without God's help. And God will help. He has helped, and he promises to help again. And that's what Christmas is all about. That's what the table before us is all about. We're going to take the table together as a family, and I'm going to pray for us as we move towards communion. But I would encourage you to bring to mind what that hopeless situation is. If that's your situation today, what is the hopeless situation that you need to in the midst of the unanswerable questions of that situation, to still come to the Lord's promise of hope in the midst of it. Well, Matthew records the tragic story of the slaughter of the innocents. And it's frankly, it's, scholars are not quite sure what to do with that passage, as it connects back to Jeremiah 31 sometimes. But what is notable is that Matthew tells this great tragedy in the midst of this joyous proclamation of Jesus' birth. And life is so much like that, that in the midst of our joys, even in the midst of Christian joy, there is deep and unspeakable tragedies. It's hard to know how to resolve all of those. It's hard to know how to resolve the slaughter of the innocents in Matthew 2 or even where to go from there. But it is noteworthy that that difficult moment is set within the context of Jesus being sent as the deliverer. And so Jesus comes to us in the midst of our difficulties not resolving them perhaps in all the ways that we would want them to be resolved, but he comes to us in the midst of our difficulties and he brings the message of hope. So this table before us this morning is the reminder that in the midst of trial and travail that there is the hope of Jesus, even as Mark read from the words of the Apostle Peter. There's a living hope that we have that cannot perish and it cannot fade.